Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Good spooky evening, Slava. Yes, good spooky evening to you, Jonathan. I hope you're crouching on the corner of your couch on the cobblestone cutlet that you live on. Cobblestone corner. Corner. Ah! I am crouching in front of my computer as Cthulhu monsters run through the cobblestone streets of my mind. Is that... Mm. Is that a... Alliteration enough for me? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) It is. It is. Today we're going through Crouch End by Stephen King. Yeah, and we have to make sure we don't lose our way. We could be never seen again. Or wait, 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 wait. I remember the line. Some are known to lose their way, and some of them lose it forever. Indeed they do. Before we Indeed they do. go off on this side quest, Slava, I want to ask you a spooky question. Yes. Riddle me this. Were you to be a different person who had a sort of passion about himself, floating around, burning from the inside, and let's say you decided that you needed to commit, I don't know, a murder. Mm. How would you go about it? Carefully. Very carefully. Now, see, if I told you in our seven listeners... That's what we're looking for. ...how I'd commit a murder, I feel like then if I really wanted to commit a murder, I'd be hampered. Because what if the murder plan I have in my head right now is the most fascinating, police-defying act of uh, homicide ever known to man? So it's an act of war. Yeah. Slava was so taken after he took a... World War II history class, and they talked about the Geneva Convention, that he decided to stick one to the United Nations and purposely go about breaking every Geneva Convention rule that he could. And so far, haha, I'm still here. I am not before the, the hag, hag? It's called a hag, yeah, so I'm not before the hag or the... What's a hag? The International Court. Oh, I only know of like a hag in mythology. And I figured that wasn't what you were talking about. No. Ah, the hag who lives in the swamp. She's got a big wart on her nose. And she talks like this. And she looks for little... You know what? We're gonna, we're gonna go all out for you, audience. I'm gonna look up pronunciation. It's probably Hogue. Hague. I was wrong on both counts. It's the Hague. That was fun. Look at I... us learning things. Well, don't sound so excited. Are you really not going to tell us how you commit a murder? You know the no. innocent. You know the innocent don't have this problem. I would only yeah, commit no, a murder. No, I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to commit a murder. I would only commit a murder in the winter. Okay, Iceman. Because the weapons you can create with water that then melt, you can throw them off the case. I feel like maybe the police in the northern part of your state should uh, <laughs> should be contacted. <laughs> Yeah, officer, have any murders confounded you? 
in, you know, last <laughs> five, ten years. Like puncture wounds that it? seem to come from nowhere. Yeah. Crushed yeah. heads. Bigger than an ice pick, smaller than a machete. Why that specific example, officer? I, just, you know, it's just noodling around me. about murders and, you know, just came in the Northeast. Yeah. yeah. No, I saw it on CSI once. Guy killed somebody with an ice pick. Yeah, there was a movie about it, too. A thing called The Assassin. It's Antonio Banderas and, oh, Stallone. And they had ice bullets in it. I think it was that. Ice bullets? It was a stupid movie from the either early 90s or late 80s. And the assassin in this movie had a bullet made out of ice. And so when it penetrates you, but then it would melt. So you you couldn't trace the bullet back to a gun, essentially. How do you make the gunpowder? I have a lot of questions. Liquid ice or nitrogen. I don't know. Oh, okay. Anyway. It was a movie I watched when I was like 11. <laughs> Like, I don't remember the finer points. Why don't of the you scientific... remember the finer points? I have questions. Don't bring something up unless you have all the answers because you know that I'm going to have questions. Next, you're going to tell me that there was a. Uh... Never mind. Anyway, the. Uh... <laughs> there wasn't any of that in there. <laughs> I didn't finish my sentence. I didn't finish my sentence. Anyway, things are getting unruly, so you know what time it is. Hit that subscribe button and never miss a side quest so that you can go on a side quest. Murder spree. Um, what did Spencer say? The kindness killer, the kindly killer, kindly killer. When also from serial... London. Mm. 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 Maybe he's crouching at your end. <laughs> I hope so. I've been lonely. The end of my attention span. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> well, cr- we read Crouch End by Stephen King, and I'm gonna slaughter the plot for you and then slava will give us kind of an overview about crowdtrend as a whole so crowdtrend is starts off with these constables these police ted vetter and robert farnman i'm sure that i'm not pronouncing his name the way that he wants to be pronounced but he's a fictional character so we're gonna go with it and they come across a bizarre case for a woman named doris freeman and she reports that her husband has disappeared by some sort of nightmarish twist of events involving otherworldly beings and tentacles and blinking eyes in the darkness and things of that manner. Anyway, Vetter, a veteran in the area, suspects a connection to a hidden realm. Well, Farnman, Farnham, Farham, the N is silent. Fine. Farham dismisses it as pure wild delusion. As they start their investigation, Farham mysteriously vanishes, leaving behind an unsolved mystery. And there are strange occurrences still happening in Crouch End. That, and very occasionally, people are known to lose their way. Some of them to lose it forever. Indeed. So for those who haven't figured it out, we're in October and we're doing horror. And for our bonus episodes, we're doing short stories by the king of horror, Stephen Edwin King, as he's known to, to his mother. Crouchen is a story uh, by Stephen King set in real life North London in the district of Crouch End. It was originally published in an anthology, Jonathan, called New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, 
published in 1980 by an editor and also horror writer from England, Ramsey Camwell. Then it was republished in a book that we read it in called Nightmares and Dreamscapes, and that is a collection that I really like of, you guessed it, Stephen King's short stories. Shocked. Shocking is the, yes, I am also shocked. So there's been an adaptation of this for TV on TNT, if you're so inclined to go find it, as part of Nightmares and Dreamscapes from the stories of Stephen King. And I think I watched a few of those episodes and they were okay. But this is interesting. A song by British black metal forward slash dark ambient band called the Axis of Perdition uses excerpts from the story as lyrics. So, haven't heard of the band, never listened to the song, but my research led me to that little tidbit. No time like the present to start diving into metal dark ambience. Indeed. Summon Cthulhu himself. That's right. So, Jonathan, you texted me earlier and said that you enjoyed this short story a lot. I enjoyed it so much so, I bought a t-shirt. Ooh. I'm lying to you. I didn't enjoy it that uh, obviously. much. You didn't enjoy it that much? No, no, no. I, I, I did enjoy it, but I didn't enjoy it enough to buy a t-shirt. Wow. There's different levels of excitement, but I thought I'd surprise you with that. But I didn't let the <laughs> joke hang long enough. Um, <laughs> anyway. We'll fix it in post. I don't think we will. That's fine. <laughs> you just telling me that. No, though. I, I really enjoyed this one. I think it was a mixture between get, getting the context beforehand, like we talked about in uh, the previous bonus episode. So that was a big part of it. Similar to a study in Emerald that we did as one of our first five test episodes when we were like, I think we're committing to this podcast now that we've been you know talking about it for two years, where I love... Well, I love Sanderson. I really like H.P. Lovecraft. I want to make a distinction here because I don't have all of his stuff memorized the way that I do the Cosmere. That said, I really love the Cthulhu mythos where there's this extra planner being looming around on Earth who drives people mad. Mm. It's fun. I enjoy it. I, I, I like it a lot. So I have the context beforehand from you. I like the Cthulhu mythos, and this gave me enough of a hook on the front end where this woman's like, oh, I lost my husband, and these guys are like, ah, yeah, we we don't really believe you, but it's fine. And then one of them goes missing, and then there's the, you know, common Cthulhu Lovecraftian storytelling where you're getting the effects of the creatures and the monsters happening to the humans but also you're getting minor descriptions about like a tentacle here and there's eyes in the darkness and things like that that really let your imagination do the driving i think that's one of the reasons i really like lovecraft also because he doesn't spend all the time describing it even though if you've listened to any number of these episodes where i'm head over heels for world building what was that? What? Keep, keep your keep keep your mouth full of tentacles. You like squid, right? And octopus cooked in a in a salad, maybe. Yeah. Ugh. Okay, tentacles are not for me, in any circumstance. <laughs> Do with that statement what you will. Um, animated or real? 
no tentacles here. What was I saying about Lovecraft? Lovecraft is, you know, not describing things in full, but me being head over heels for world building and wanting to know all the answers, I I find it to be an interesting juxtaposition about my own love for story when, you know, a Lovecraftian story pops up and you don't get all the answers. It's But I think it's because I have the context knowing that I'm not going to get all the answers that really keeps me kind of intrigued. Not even guessing, but just intrigued, right? So I'm glad that you recommended this one. It's so far the my favorite of the short stories by King that we've read. So big win there. What about you? How, how many times have you read this? I've read this numerous times. And I have read this collection, I want to say at least six times, all the way through. So six times, I would say. Seven being this week for okay. for our podcast. I've said this before, I enjoy King's short stories. Skeleton Crew, Bazaar of Bad Dreams, there's Night Shift, and Nightmares and Dreamscapes. All of those collections I have read numerous times. So coming back to this story was uh, was exciting. I like it. I don't know if it's my all-time favorite Stephen King short story, but it would definitely make, I don't know, top 10. I think you can read it in an hour or less. And I like the back and forth between the cops. What is it about the dialogue that gets you, that you really enjoy so much? It's this... The the older guy, Vetter, is open to the possibility of this not being what it is. And you could tell through the dialogue that he's kind of thinking about it and he's being kind to the woman because he knows she's been through something. And although he's not fully sold on it, he could, at least for me, the way I see it, he's processing the story and what the woman has told him in his back and forth with Farham. And you could tell his the, the little wheels in his head are turning. He goes, hmm, this could be something more. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of tells Farham, like, hey, don't dismiss the American as a kooky, you know, broad. Things happen here. And right. it's just nice back and forth. The volley there between them is well written. It's not just, you know, an old guy who's seen some stuff and a young whippersnapper who doesn't know anything. Yeah. Because that's so cliche. And it's here, but it's not written in a cliche manner. Why do you think Farham is so dismissive? He doesn't strike me as a deeply logical character. You know how some characters are like, I only function through logic. And they're, they dismiss other things. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Okay. Yeah. But he doesn't strike me as that kind of person because he also doesn't strike me, to your point, as like just the young gun who doesn't think that this is real and blah, 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 blah. Right? Yeah. I think it's because he's there. It's a stepping stone for him. We talk about presuppositions all the time on this ep- on this podcast. Given his presuppositions, he's here. He wants to make sergeant in a couple of years. He's got to put in his time. He's been a cop for a while, so he's seen... You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sure he's seen, you know, plenty of crazy broads, you know, the way he would describe it. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, a woman lost her husband and she's an American and she's in Crouch End. I'm sure she got mugged and she's just losing her her mind, right? He's not a thoughtful person. No, no, yeah. He's just there to check a box, to get to the next thing in his career. Do his time. Move on. And that's it. And there's procedures that he's probably been trained at as a constable. And there's things that you look for. 
And if suspect says this, you go on to this. If they say B, you use tactic S. And for him, this yeah, is just yeah. a, a clear case of a hysterical woman. And I think that's why Farham is dismissive. Yeah, grocery list style case for him. Go to the store, pick up the, the steaks for the dinner. Husband goes missing. Hey, he he just, he's done with your marriage. Like, move on, lady. Yeah. But I, I don't remember it mentioning this, but this is the impression, and I think it's to your point here. This is the impression that I got from Farham was he was like a transfer. And maybe it did say that, and that's why. Mm-hmm. He was. Oh, okay. Maybe that's why I'm like subconsciously like I didn't remember that specifically, but that's the way his character felt, where he wasn't just that young gun cliche guy, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about the genre itself, right? Unless you want to... Con- no, genre's good. Uh, I think we, we could dive into the horror genre itself being October and all. When you read horror, and you said you haven't read a lot, except Lovecraft, you know, Poe maybe, right? I'd really consider those suspense, though. You know, like, less horror... Well, Poe, I would consider more suspense. I think Lovecraft drifts over into horror on some of his stories. Yeah, those are my, those are my initial takes. Well, let me ask you that Have you ever actually read horror outside of the the stuff that I've given to you from Stephen no. King? No, not that I can, not that I can pinpoint. Which is why I I would never claim to be a well-read horror uh, aficionado. In your limited amount of <laughs> horror exposure, what are like you think some emotional draws? I mean, it's like psychological responses that people might have to reading horror. What what like so? It's a two-part question, right? And uh, those who are emotionally drawn to it have a particular psychological response, and they enjoy that response. It's not like they're... Yeah, it's a positive feedback loop. When I read horror, I get this response. I like being scared like that. I'm going to read more horror, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So give me some Jonathan thoughts on that. Well, since you've you've stated such a succinct question, how could I miss what exactly you actually asked? Let me take a stab at it. (laughs) Aha! Zing. Uh, a real zinger. So I, I mentioned this earlier with Lovecraft himself and then also this story where you get pieces. And good good horror filmmaking is like this too. Again, not an aficionado of horror, but I know more suspense that leaned horror where you never see the monster and it's a lot more powerful than when you do see the monster. In any in any peak, Cloverfield, right? You remember Cloverfield? Do you remember the marketing campaign for this? Yep. They put a a video on YouTube and shared it around, no context, and it's a home video style shot piece where they're having a party, and then this monster comes into New York, and you don't get a full shot of it because it's all first person POV. Basically, it was a riveting piece. It wasn't life-changing per se, but the storytelling style was what I would classify as horror because you don't get that full look at the monster. You only get the effects. You can fully see the effects that it's having on the people, the city, what they have to do to try to quote-unquote escape, who's dying. That has a psychological toll and a physical toll. And I mean, what you know, now that I think of it, it's, it's also an emotional toll. You can't really separate the emotion. No one's just psychological without emotion. But they're running away from this thing, trying to get safe. But the same thing happens to what's-her-face in in the story we just read. She is dealing with the effects of what took place, and then 
the police in their first response are like, well, okay. But she's clearly in a tizzy beyond normal hysteria that would happen. I think it's that effect that's happening to a character that really gives us some of that flavor of horror in the writing that we we see here because she's psych you know psychologically how do I want to say this she is in psychological unrest she's a, she's highly emotional and she has a physical loss and those things I can't think of a horror story and again not an amateur or below an amateur some more of a novice but can you think of a horror story where it's still horror but it doesn't have a character in response who is showing physical loss psychological issues and emotional distress because i think that that's a very clear distinction of the horror that i've had in both film and literature i don't, I don't think i can think of one right I can't. right and usually the psychological and emotional parts of that are a fear response or a fight or flight item um with the characters you know the, the classic tropes for horror like there's six kids and they went into this haunted house and then one of them's this hot cheerleader and you know, she's going to be naked before the end of the film because, and she's going to die, but not before we see her naked because we need people in the seats. <laughs> you know, like, okay, we got it. And they're going to kill the ethnic one, you know, because that's what they do. And it's just like, okay. And then they ended up making a trope of it with, you know, scary movie. Or the the Cabin in the Woods. Oh, uh, I never saw it. You should watch it. It's a good horror that's actually disguised as satire, but it's not as insane and silly as scary movie. Where it's an actual mm, horror movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know. Interesting. Yes. Where do you think, and this is more nuanced, so I don't know if we, I, I don't have a good answer for this question that I'm going to ask you. Where's the line between suspense and horror? Last bonus episode, or first bonus episode, wherever this drops in our timeline of bonus episodes for October, I said that horror for Slava for me, there's a large swath of things that I would consider horror. And I thought about what I said in the days afterwards. And now that you bring this question up, Silence of the Lambs comes to mind. That's more a psychological horror or suspense. It's not, there's no monster per se. The monster huh. is just okay. a regular guy. Okay. But this is me just flushing it out live yeah, yeah, in the yeah, air, yeah. right? Um, I think horror has to have a monster. A monster, for sure, or some supernatural, paranormal, something that's out of the ordinary. It's, you don't you don't encounter it going to McDonald's and Crouch End on Tuesday at two p.m. Something inhuman, something or superhuman, inhuman. or superhuman. Yeah, you encounter it at Crouch End after sunset in the section where you know the shops are kind of dilapidated and. There's a boy with a hook for an arm. <laughs> That's you know, and Is the cat take me on a pirate adventure. It's something. It's going to be an adventure. <laughs> I'm not necessarily narrowing the swath, if I may butcher the English language here, of my my definition from the previous episode. But I think that would be asterisks. You can maybe call it horror, and it might be also suspense. But there has to be an asterisk for it. Is there? So I think that that's a f- super fine definition between yeah. suspense and horror. I don't know if it's classically defined per se because it, you know, it was, it was an on the spot question. We didn't yeah. talk about it beforehand. But my follow up for that is we know that there are su- suspense movies that can have horror 
But are there horror movies that have no suspense? Sorry, not movies, but like literature, horror, anything. I, I'm just sorry. I'm coming at this from a from a filmmaker perspective. We didn't watch any movies. We read a book. So here's what Wikipedia says: horror is. Horror is a genre of fiction that is intended to disturb, frighten, or scare. Horror is often divided into subcategories or subgenres of psychological horror. That's what I said. And supernatural horror, which are in the realm of speculative fiction. Literary historian J.A. Cuddon, or Cuddon, in 1984 defined the horror story as a piece of fiction which shocks or even frightens the reader, or perhaps induces a feeling of repulsion or loathing. Often the central menace of a work of horror fiction can be interpreted as a metaphor for larger fears of society. I think horror can have very little suspense. Like Friday the 13th. Maybe the first time America watched it, there was a sense of suspense. Oh, where's Jason? What's going to happen? I'm like, Jason's going to kill all of them. So there can be horror that's not suspenseful. What about in a book? Can it be a horror book without suspense? I don't think so. I don't think so either. I'm just asking questions. No, I don't think so because then you're just describing gore. Yeah. Gratuitous. Wanton yeah. and gratuitous, and you're like, yeah. okay, this is kind of scary, I guess, because bad thing is being described, but nothing is set up. Yeah. So, I want to I wanna go off the rails here. Have you ever been to a city that you didn't know about, and you were wandering around at night? No. Seedier parts of town that maybe you shouldn't be in? I've been to seedier parts of town where I shouldn't have been when I was a delivery driver, and I just got stuck in the seedier part of town after dark, but I never went wandering around. <laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. I was just wondering if you had any stories of uh, yeah, times. Yeah, I was sitting at a stoplight in traffic in the seedier part of town. A woman tried to open the door, get into my car. Nope. And then <laughs> nope. for oh no, there wasn't a it wasn't a lady of the night. There's no need that this was a robbery in progress. There's no oh there's no lulls. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she she didn't have some it, sort of crop top half off. No, no, she had a hoodie, uh, uh, she had a dark hoodie on, and pants, so. <laughs> Maybe she thought you were. <laughs> a very modest hooker, yes, she was covered up. Uh, I know you're um, evangelical well, like. Yeah, very evangelical <laughs> hooker. It's her first day, so she didn't, she didn't get the memo that she was supposed to show skin. <laughs> so as I got away from her, a car started following me, and I knew enough about the city where I was sitting in the car driving at this point, getting away from this this woman, if I turned right, it would take me to a frontage road, and eventually, off that frontage road, I could get on the highway. And so I did that, but the frontage road was about six blocks away from that main drag, and a car jumped behind me out of one of the alleys as I went down the street and followed me with its lights off very closely, like bumper to bumper, until I got into the highway, and then they turned the lights on. I could see above me. The lights went on, and they just sped off. That's wow. Not monster. Not not Cthulhu monsters. Different kind of monsters, but suspense. And I was there doing a job. I wasn't there meandering with you know my lawyer husband trying to find a co- his colleague friend. Right. So were you like a pizza delivery driver or something? No, a courier for for a company that did uh did del- special deliveries for government entities mm. or you know like jurisdiction jurisdiction yeah timely you got to sign it yeah. yeah 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 and then they also do college to college 
So I, I was delivering some documents to a college in that part of town. Woof. Yep. Did you demand more pay when you got back to the office? Eh, not really. I was making pretty decent pay. Ah, you almost get jumped. You got to double your income. <laughs> yeah, but I did tell him. Uh, I did tell him I'm not going to that part of town ever again. Well, I was that's, like, "That's good. That just just deal with it. I'm not. I'm not dying. Like I like. I like the money. I'm not dying for any ascent of it. Yeah, it's good. The money's good. It's not that good. Yeah. Interesting. I was thinking while well, you were telling your story. I don't really have. Whenever I've been in seedier parts of town, it's been daylight. There have been things that have happened, but nothing suspenseful or horror horror based. I don't go to seedier parts of town. I don't like exploring that much. If I go exploring, it's a premeditated exploration, meaning I want to go to a brewery, the Rocky Mountains. Oh yeah, or I want to go to New York City, and I want to see Times Square. I want to go to Broadway, and I want to eat uh, at Sabaros. Yeah, you- <laughs> like you know. Uh, so it's okay. So then I go New York's uh, prime pizza place. <laughs> Thanks, Michael yeah. Scott. So that's how I do it. I I don't like going. Let's just go to a city and just walking up and down, you know, Manhattan Avenue. There's no such thing, but you know, and then uh, and then just find our adventure there. Like, no, I'm not just aimlessly walking around looking for an address either. Well, the theme here is, folks, don't go out alone at night. Streets you're unfamiliar with. That's for sure. What do you think? About horror as a genre that makes us think, and not just about worldly things or otherworldly things or supernatural, but maybe confronts ideas that otherwise would be missed by other genres? Is that a fair question? Yeah. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre comes to mind. Hmm. I'm not regularly confronted with cannibalism, right? Uh, or or uh, the Amityville horror Either one. I don't remember the difference. I thought they were part are there, of the same. Are there cannibalism in either one? Yeah. Yeah. Something goes on, and, and then they start eating people. It's one of those towns. Like, something happened, and they're just kind of trapped, and somebody's car breaks down, and they start eating people. I don't think either of those movies have cannibalism in it. Yeah, they do. Amityville Horror, The Haunted House, has cannibalism in it? I think it might be The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Let's uh, find out. This is a good side quest. Well, you're looking that up. I think horror does require us to confront ideas about, specifically about the depravity of humanity, because you have to get to a very specific spot before you're going to eat another human being, right? Like, all joking aside, I don't know if people are familiar with this, but Jack Daniels, when he went to Africa one time, or maybe it was South America, I can't remember, he paid the Aboriginal folks in that area that practiced cannibalism. He's like, I just want to see it happen. And he paid them. They filleted a woman in front of him, and ate it. It's a it's a it's a grotesque story. Wow. All right. So you're right. Sawyer family from Texas Chainsaw Massacre were cannibals. I've never seen the movie, so hence my suspicion. Because for, in my mind, the plot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre did not involve cannibalism. But what it doesn't matter. I was no, wrong. Yeah, it did. But Amityville Horror is a haunted house. It was one of them. I knew they they came out like around the same time, and I couldn't remember which one was which. But yeah, I do distinctly remember the cannibalism, and I went, woof. Yeah. But Jack Daniels, let's get back to the Jack Daniels of the whiskey fame. Yes. Really? Yeah, it's a really famous... Look it up. So, according to Snopes, it says mixture. By his own admission, Jameson witnessed the murder and mutilation of a girl in what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 1888, 
The incident took place after Jamison paid handkerchiefs to a man who said, give me a bit of cloth and see. And it's Jamison Whiskey, not Jack Daniels, apparently. Jamison insisted he did not set out with the intention of causing or witnessing any murder or act of cannibalism and described what he ultimately witnessed the most horribly sickening sight I ever likely seen in my life. Snope says that that's false, that he did not intend to do that. Snope says that he certainly did go out with the intention to buy a slave girl and watch her die. Wow. Regardless of that was, if you know, of the intent, the action was taken and then there was a consequence. Yeah, absolutely. That is insane. Those are the types of horror things that make us confront the depths of humanity. There are stories of folks who practice voodoo or witchcraft and they steal babies and, and sacrifice them to demons. It's not a common thing in more cities, but more rural spaces, um, from my understanding. The horror question, you know, these are the things that, that we're confronted with, is the, only, the evil that humanity can step to. I think that's the stuff that normally is ignored in our modern world. And when we watch something like Saw or something like... Signs of the Lambs, I'm trying to think of other kind of scarier suspense horror movies that have just humans doing stupid, crazy, or even evil stuff. Any documentary about a cult, you know, that drinks Kool-Aid, right? Yeah. I've watched, well, listened to the recording from the Jim Jones cult right when they're about to take the cyanide, and as he's preaching, teaching, whatever you want to call that, getting them all revved up, calling them to kill themselves. Very ghastly stuff. Just just, just awful. Anyway, to make sure we land this plane, let me look at my notes and we can move on to our next thing. All right, Jonathan. So a small transition is necessary to talk about the Lovecraftian aspect of the story. I have some questions. I think they're fun questions, especially because I got Chad GPT to write these questions for us. First one is, Lovecraft's influence is evident throughout Crouch End. How does King pay homage to Lovecraft's style and themes? And what unique elements does he bring to the story? You're a Lovecraft fan. I am. What say you? What say me? Well, I'd say that one of the things that I really appreciated about this story in general, even though it's short, is the same love that I had for Case in Emerald. What is it called? A Study in Emerald. Study in Emerald. By Neil Gaiman. Yeah, because Lovecraft wasn't really successful as, a, as an author. Not really. Like, But he wrote the most unique things with his suspense and monsters and these ancient forbidden knowledge. Now, I think that he ate lead paint chips because I just think that people back then just didn't, they were just things. And so a lot of people went mad, which is interesting. So it had or to be mercury, something. right? That there was like yeah, something. Medical, medical procedures involving mercury and cocaine. Yeah. Take a glass of mercury and two, two, two eight balls and you'll be two good bumps. in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> you'll be fine. We'll get rid of the, the, the common cold, demons. no problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Demons will demons. stop screaming. The ancient, your ancient spirits will stop haunting you. Yeah. Yeah. So even though this person wasn't successful as an author, Lovecraft, he became successful, and this is what every every great author's 
this is every great artist's story, right? Where they die, their work blows up, someone finds them, some publisher or something, and then they get notarized, which is great. But what I, and full circle here, the reason I appreciate this is because Gaiman and King and other people have gone, what if I took some of his stuff and made it in my world or, or like took a stab at it? Because it's so unique. Now, right. any deep literature reader might tell me, like, well, Lovecraft based it on blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know that, though. So, from where I stand, it's original. Yeah. And as we said in the beginning of the episode, originally, this was published in an anthology of Lovecraftian-inspired short stories. So, King was tasked with this. Yeah. Not necessarily taken away from your point. Not at all, actually. But King was tasked with this, and I think he did a phenomenal job. The omnibus that you had me read, that you suggested for me, that I bought both omnibuses, I went through one and maybe a quarter of the second one, the the cadence, the, the pace, the eerie feeling that you get when the monster not seen is described, the boy with the hook hand, the guy asking for a cigarette underneath the viaduct, the green eyes or the red eyes, mm-hmm. um, the weird the eyes in the darkness in general, the eyes in the darkness, the weird names over the factory and the doors, all that is very Lovecraftian and mm-hmm. replicated well. I don't. This is not. This is not necessarily a pastiche like Studying Emerald was. Still, really well done. And for King, and yes, I'm a fan, so I'm biased. What King does well. I think he mixes supernatural and reality well. He mixes suspense and horror, science fiction and horror, like we saw in Beach World. Now, people will argue at nauseam on the internet, they might find fault with how Beach World was written or how this really captures or doesn't capture a Lovecraft style. But at the end of the day, I think King accomplished his mission. The original mission set forth by the publishers, oh, yeah. editors of uh, the Cthulhu Easily. Universe mythology. Yeah. That so getting back to your real question though of like what themes and styles what unique elements does King bring to the story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if King brought anything unique to it outside of just doing it because he didn't expand on anything that Lovecraft did, in my opinion. Which is okay. I just like reading Lovecraft. But to answer your question, because that was the original question, what unique elements did King bring to the story? I don't think he did. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Maybe it's just for the sake of disagreeing with you, but I think there's one unique thing that King brought, and it's it's not necessarily a first person, which a lot of Lovecraft's is first person. It's not at all a first person, and there's an, a lot of more characters involved, right? So there's these two people that experience okay, that's the world that's of Lovecraft monsters, literally, because they're, they're like Lovecraft's names are in in the in this story, but you get outside perspective and then you get kind of the other people who are stuck in this world like the couple that help her and then they realize oh you touched the other side uh yeah cop stations over there peace out lady deuces we're leaving so there's those peripheral characters and then there's the cops that's fair one of them who's is like eh, i don't know i'm trying to make sergeant and the other one is like nah there's something here but you know it is what it is we live with it right I, you know, now that you, you draw attention to it, I didn't think about it, but that is a pretty big difference, and 
on two on two on both accounts, right? So like it's not first person, and then more than two people or three people are involved. Yeah, which makes me think maybe that's why it didn't feel. It was like, oh, this is a nice homage to Lovecraft, but it wasn't like, oh, I feel the same level of suspense when the guy is like, I'm in a submarine. And we have this idol from this island that we were on, and like everyone has killed themselves since we've taken this idol on board, and you're experiencing it in the first person. So that's those are some some good observations. Yeah, and in that particular story, you're alone with the narrator on a sinking submarine that's slowly losing power, going to the depths of the sea, which is scary in itself. You are left just with the guy's thoughts. So that's there's a lot more tension there yeah. Yeah. than a full-on story from a third-person omnipotent, right? Mm-hmm. You, you're kind of distanced a little bit as a reader, or in this case, a listener. So on this on this topic, how do you think the unknowable ancient evil, which is like straight-up Lovecraft, right, affected the characters? Do you think it was in a similar fashion to like the, the submarine that we just described with one of, you know, the Omnibucket? Omnibucket. That's what yeah. we should call it. Omnibucket. Omnibucket. New yeah. name for a podcast, Omnibucket. Omnibucket. What's it about? Everything. Everything. Omni. Every, everything in the bucket. It's like, uh, oh, shoot, it's ruined my joke. What's that Travel Across the Universe book? It's like Fire Guide Kitchen. to the Galaxy? Yes. Good. It's, this is not your Saturday morning cartoons. Anyway. In most books that I read, or movies that I watched that uh, do this well, that evil, when it manifests itself, when it reveals itself to unsuspecting characters like Lonnie and Deborah, halfway into the episode, I forget the name, Lonnie and his wife, the way it affects them is very similar like it would affect anybody else. Lonnie's focused on finding his friend. He is probably less susceptible or less able to be influenced, yes, less susceptible to influence of ancient evil, supernatural. And that's why he crawls through the bushes like an idiot. And his wife is probably a little bit more open to these things. Uh, that That's pure speculation. It's a setup to answer your question. Yeah. It affects characters in a way that one would expect. And that's not to take away from King's writing. You have these two people going to England The kids are at the hotel room with the sitter. They have money. They're normal, average, upper-middle-class guys on an adventure through Europe, in this case, uh, England. And they're faced with something that is mind-altering, mind-breaking. Because Lonnie goes to the bushes, and his mind is broken. And then, although his wife, name still forgotten. Name, Name omitted to protect the innocent. Right. Or the guilty. Uh, yeah, <laughs> or the guilty. She gets through the ordeal, but she's forever changed. She could try to commit suicide. Anytime evil manifests itself, let's take it into the real world now. Anytime evil manifests itself, the effect it has on a person, whether the unbeliever, the believer, and I'm not talking about religion at that point. I'm talking about person's worldviews. Remember presuppositions? Like, you know, we should call this a... Podcast, the presuppositional podcast. The presuppositions one comes to with, like, like Alani or his wife, it will still shake them. It's like when you're confronted with unmasked evil, 
whether it's the fiction of Lovecraft or the homage of King to Lovecraft or re- the realities of war or a rape or a, an assault or the bombing of City X in any war in the last hundred years. Yeah, like people come out of it shaken. And I, I, I think I'm not necessarily answering your question because I don't think there's a direct answer to this. I guess that's a fair answer. However, what about this? Another, another, another tennis ball set up here. So you say that it doesn't really affect the characters, right? That's, that's if I understood you correctly. No, I said that it affects them, but it's a very um, expected way. It's not out of the ordinary. Lonnie reacts the way he does because of Lonnie's presuppositions and his wife, name still unknown. Uh, reacts the way she does because of her either openness or closeness or her worldview. Same thing can be said for real world evil. Different people will respond to it differently. But when faced with evil in fiction or in the real world with unmasked evil, it will affect everybody and you won't walk away from it untouched. Okay. Well, I, at least from the character's perspective, not the real world comment that you made. To me, that was like, well, it didn't really affect them in in a unique sense, I guess. Like, okay, because because it just hits the normal, like the person goes mad type thing. So I I concede that point. I misinterpreted it. That's fine. But I'd say going a little further on that, because you're you're the king expert on this episode. How do you think the king did using the trope in general, making that try to hit home in this version of a Lovecraftian? I feel like we're we're gonna call it an homage. I feel like that's what I want to call it. I mean, listen, just a, just a few minutes ago, I said it's kind of a pastiche, but maybe not necessarily a pastiche. But I think you can get away from when you're when you collect an anthology of Cthulhu universe influenced pieces of work, short stories. I guess it's a pastiche, even though King wasn't going out of his way to write a pastiche like Gaiman was. Although even then, I think Gaiman was asked by a editor to do it. So I just looked it up real quick. And homage goes a step further than a pastiche, which I didn't know. The more you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. An homage pays respect by borrowing a plot, which I don't think happened. No. Nope. Well, pastiche pays respect by borrowing style. So this is there a pastiche. Go. This is a pastiche, yep. All right. I'm wrong, and you're wrong, but we're also right. Excellent. So how does King use the trope in his story, and does it affect the narrative? Is that what you asked? Uh, how how does it affect the narrative? Yeah, which then okay. got me thinking about the pastiche. So if you wanted to, because now that I'm thinking about it, like if this is a pastiche, you could comment on that as well because the question kind of goes in line with that now that we have brushed up again on pastiches. Well, I'll answer it this way and maybe it'll land somewhere next to the target zone. King, very specifically, King uses Lovecraftian names for his characters, for his demons and you know, evil manifestations. And then there's this foreboding sense of evil. And there's these out of the ordinary is such an understatement, but these weird little uh, snippets of the story where the, the kid with the hook hand, the girl, how they're making fun of her, the guy underneath the, the viaduct, her walking and seeing things and everything being out of order, almost like she walked through the, you know, a mist. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Almost as she walked through the mist and found herself in between two worlds. Those things, the weirdness of characters, 
the foreboding sense of doom or evil or an, a character being unsettled in their environment, that I think King captured well. Because even though Lonnie's oblivious to it all, like she's starting to sense it. They can't even get a cab, right? So there's, that's already weird. And I'm not saying in the sense that, oh, wow, it's obviously something's wrong because not even the cab w- wants to go there. I'm saying go a, le- a, level, a level deeper from their perspective, not knowing Crouch End is cursed or haunted or something weird's happening there. Their day starts out weird already. They can't get a cab. They lost their address. Lonnie's going on about something else. She's a little bit worried. She's seeing the headlines in the newsstand. 60 dead in underground horror. Or 60 lost in underground horror. Everything around them is starting to slowly decay and fall into, like, disarray, which is saying the same damn thing, I suppose. But that is what King does well, trying to capture Lovecraftian kind of narrative. That's my answer. I think it's fair. I, I think that's a fair response. Okay. Well, one more thing before we close out our little episode here, before we land the plane, as we say. I think we talk a little bit about certain elements. I already mentioned them, but let's dive into them a little bit deeper. And after that, we'll, we'll see how the plane lands. I really enjoyed when Doris loses Lonnie, or even when Lonnie is about to get lost. I think we should start there, actually. Because Lonnie kind of pissed me off when he hears growling behind the thicket and, you know, big strong man in his own head. I'm going to go check it out. Somebody's in, in uh, needs help. Did you not just take a cab ride to the weirdest part of town you've ever <laughs> seen in your life, Mr. Lawyer? You're walking by hedges. Nothing seems right. There's kids with hooks for arms, like fleshy hooks. And then there's something growling in the hedge. And your first impulse is to help, and and no, and don't don't at me with the thing where he's a man and it's his instinct. I'll grant you that. There's no instinct that tells you you should go into a hedge that's growling at you. It's not a woman being attacked. It's not a baby left in a bassinet. You're about to die, dumbass. She bought insurance. It's fine. And so he walks out, and then he's not tough anymore because whatever he saw you know, broke his little lawyer mind. But after that, that's just my little side rant, and feel free to disagree or agree with me, Jonathan, or weigh in on Lonnie. But what I found very interesting is the, the everything else that happens where Doris is transported into a Cthulhu-type world where you don't know what's going on. The green eyes, give us a fag, love. At the same time as this is happening, the train, you know, goes above the viaduct and suit falls off of it, right? And uh, so, so it's the real world, and yet wherever Doris is trapped is just beyond the veil of this real world. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was kind of, I thought that was very, very interesting. I liked that too, because it's, you don't know where you're at. You're in between. You're in the in-between. Uh, almost to quote Stranger Things, you know, it's the in-between, right? Between two mm-hmm. worlds. Although that doesn't happen, I think, in our physical reality very often. I think that there are some instances that people have felt like they were in in-between. You know, near-death experiences, deeply horrific moments where there's a lot of trauma going on or physical violence, where your mind drifts to the in-between 
or you're transported. I don't really know how to describe it. Yeah, because I'm I'm there with Doris, and you know her stupid husband is gone, and I'm kind of happy for her. I'm, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm just I'm just being an asshole. But Do- Lonnie is gone. Doris is walking around, and you should love this. There's there's actually a setup and a progression to her going slightly insane. Right? It's not like Beach World where what's the guy's name Reigns. He was forgettable, I'm not sure. Yeah, the forgettable guy, not Shapiro, the other guy in Beach World, is immediately insane because of the sand, right? Here, you kind of get a step-by-step progression into Crazyville. Because she starts seeing all those Lovecraftian names, right? The names of the monsters Mm -hmm. on sides of buildings. There's a, a good sense of creepy. And eerie to it. I I agree with you. I I I really like this piece. What about the goat man? What 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 was the what was the guy that took Lonnie? The little boy says, the the goat with a thousand eyes has him now or something like that. The goat with a thousand kids. The goat with a thousand kids. Enlighten me, Mister Lovecraft uh, expert. What is the goat? Who's the goat with a thousand kids? Michael Jordan. He's the goat. Some it's a thousand people, kids. Some people say it's LeBron. It's, it's MJ. It's not. Oh, well, there you have it, folks. That, you heard it here first. Um, that joke didn't hit. Side quest. This is the main Michael quest. Jordan is a demonic force <laughs> from England. Uh, he's the Queen's gift to America. Yeah. So, what about the thousand? The, the goat with the thousand kids. Who is he? What is he? You mean like in Mythos? I don't know. Yeah, in, in the Lovecraftian Mythos. Oh, I'm not familiar. I haven't read every Lovecraftian story that exists. Well, Jonathan, let's look it up, and then we'll uh, we'll both know. The goat with a thousand young, Shubnigurath. Excuse me. That's that's what Wikipedia says his name is. Uh, Shubnigurath is a deity created by H.P. Lovecraft. She's often associated with the phrase "the black goat." of the woods with a thousand young. The only other name by which Lovecraft referred to her was Lord of the Wood in his story, The Whisperer in Darkness. Shub Nigurath is first mentioned in Lovecraft's revision story, The Last Test, 1928. She is not described by Lovecraft, but she is defined as a mother goddess in the mound and... She is the one of the deities siding with humanity against hostile gods in the story out of the aeons. That's the goat with a thousand young. And apparently, while in London, she's hungry for American lawyers. <laughs> wow. Guess I'm safe. Yep. As long as you're not Lonnie. As long as you're not Lonnie who likes to crawl through bushes at anything that growls at him. I'm going to just leave that there. Fair enough. Anyway, that's that. we're going to call that a wrap. That seems like an ending spot. I would say so. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on SideQuest. Be sure to comment on whether or not you have a scary story that you want to share with us, or if you've been to Crouch End. Or if you murdered anybody, and tell us where the body is. Okay, careful. It's the internet. They might, they might actually have, and they want to take you out for a nice meal. Ooh, all right. I'm buying an insurance um, policy on you. 
I would imagine you already have. You're the kind of guy in my mind that would have insurance policies on his friends. <laughs> and then start a podcast, wait for 46 episodes, <laughs> and say, how would you commit a murder? Oh, really? You know, there's always time for arson. I'm going to go to jail. This is... That's it, folks. Uh, join us next week where I'll be hosting alone because... Jonathan will be arraigned <laughs> behind bars. <laughs> Not the good kind. No.